Well, it's good to see you all, and it's good to hear Brother Jeff play the piano for us and to sing with Brother John. Thank you, Jubal, for being here to play. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm in a position that I never like to be in, and I've ended a book, and I'm between books. <laughs> And that's uh, what I affectionately or non-affectionately refer to as no man's land uh, because it's, it's good to have a system of study and uh, to, to know from week to week what it is that we're going to study. And I've got a number of things I've been thinking about for a long time uh, for us to study uh, together. Well, I originally had planned just to go straight from Luke to Acts, and then I thought, well, I, I won't be that cruel to you, and uh, even though that would make sense, and they're designed to, to be read that way. Um, so Acts is volume two of Luke, and you can see that right from verse one. And so they do form a symmetry there that begs to just keep, keep reading. But... Uh, the study through Luke took a while, and I thought, well, it'd be good to take a break and do some different things, uh, and so I'm not really sure what I'll settle on for the next uh, few months, uh, but I do want to spend some time walking with you through at least parts of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That, to me, seems to be the most natural place to go. Since at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we were thinking about the resurrection of Jesus and the physical proofs of the resurrection given therein, 1 Corinthians 15 really calls upon us to, uh, to think about the logical extension of the reality of Christ's resurrection. And it helps us to get at the heart of what this thing is that we have believed and that we are a part of. And so I, I think at least for a few weeks we'll spend some time in 1 Corinthians 15. And if you really want to get into the futuristic aspects of the res resurrection, let me know because uh, I'll be glad to go through this chapter again. We did it, but it was about 15 years ago, so we might have all forgotten what it was we learned then. All right, so let's read together the first two verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and begin our study this morning. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory that Excuse me, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. It's good for us to take some time. It's nice, in fact, to be able to come here and do something normal, to take a break from uh, the chaos that the world has become, and maybe even the chaos that our lives uh, might be, uh, might be filled with. It's good to come and to, uh, to spend time together around fellow believers singing and, and hopefully uh, hearing the word of God in, in truth. And for the Corinthian congregation, not only was the world itself chaotic, but their congregation had become chaotic. And it had become chaotic due to their own lack of spiritual maturity. Paul refers to them in chapter 3 as carnal or fleshly. It's the opposite of being spiritual. Paul uh, signals to them that the real problem with their church and, or the problems that had arisen within their church came from the fact that rather than maturing and becoming adults, adult believers, they had remained infantile believers. And the spiritual maturity of their congregation could be gauged by a number of symptoms that had arisen within the church. 
that is the overall uh, maturity level of the congregation was borne out by the presence of certain problems. The key problem that signaled their immaturity was the fact that the, uh, the Corinthians were divided amongst themselves. And one of the features of their division was that some of them were gauging themselves or proclaiming themselves to be more spiritual than the others. This is interesting, right? Because Paul identifies in the letter that their problem is maturity, but already within the congregation, some of them have lauded themselves as more mature than the others, as more spiritual than the others. And what were the signs of of their maturity, at least in their own eyes? Well, they gauged their maturity in the following ways. Number one, who was the preacher? Which apostle preached the gospel when I believed? Was it Paul? Was it Peter? Or others had not even proclaimed themselves to be saved by the preaching of an apostle, but rather by a man by the name of Apollos. And so, based upon who the preacher was, when they heard the gospel, they say, okay, well, I'm, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Peter or Cephas. Well, I'm of Apollos. And this division, these lines of divisions that they thought were indications of their superior spirituality, Paul says, no, these are actually indications of your maturity, that you would even debate such a thing, that you would even think in such a way is an indication of your spiritual immaturity, not of your spiritual maturity. Paul also indicates that within the Corinthian congregation, there were some who were puffed up based upon the degree of knowledge that they thought they had. So I know more about the Bible than you. I know more about spiritual things than you do. And that's evidenced by the fact that, well, let's say, I know I can go down to the marketplace and purchase some meat that was part of a sacrifice to an idol and I can eat that. Or I can go to someone's home where that gets eaten. And I understand that there's nothing wrong with that. You apparently seem not to have that level of knowledge. Therefore, I'm clearly more spiritually mature than you. And Paul allows that that may in fact be the case, but there was still evidence of spiritual immaturity by the abuse of their knowledge. The Corinthians were divided over things like marriage. And then toward the end of the letter, it's clear they were divided over what Paul calls spiritual matters. Where, based upon whatever spiritual gift that a person thought he or she had, they proclaimed themselves to be more spiritual than those who didn't have that gift. And not only did they claim to be more spiritual, but they proclaimed themselves to be more important to the function of the church than those who didn't share their spiritual gift. Now, what you see here, of course, is that you can have people who are saved and Paul never seems to question their salvation. You can have people who are saved, who share a common baptism, who meet together on a regular basis on the basis of belief in God and trust and faith in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that congregation can still have all sorts of problems can still have all sorts of troubles. It shouldn't have, but it can. And Paul writes this letter to address these problems within the congregation. And in the last part of the letter, as I've already signaled, in fact, beginning in chapter 12, running through the end of chapter 15, we're in a part of the letter where Paul addresses what he calls spiritual things or spiritual matters. And the Corinthians appear to have had a misunderstanding of spiritual matters in two key areas. 
The first area is over the issue of whether certain spiritual gifts make someone more important to the church than those who do not have that gift. So they misunderstand the purpose of spiritual gifts, their function within the congregation, what they're designed to do, and what they say about the individual who has that gift. The second spiritual, the, the secondary, excuse me, where they appear to have a, a real misunderstanding is over the resurrection. And the resurrection in chapter 15 is, is the second spiritual thing that they don't understand. Now, he addresses how the resurrection is related to spiritual things in particular in the middle of the chapter. But he first addresses a, the, the source of the problem that has grown up underneath. And that is that within the Corinthian congregation there appear to be some who are now teaching that there is no such thing as the resurrection. And Paul wants to deal with that first and then he wants to address other objections that the Corinthians have obviously heard and that they have posed to him and asked him to address. So, as we look, or as we return back to 1 Corinthians 15 and 1, let's look at the way, first of all, that Paul deals with them in what I would call a pastoral sense. Paul is, is clearly concerned about the Corinthian congregation. He loves them. He wants to see all errors corrected. He wants to see this church continue to thrive and to grow in its understanding of the truth. He doesn't want to see them derailed as no pastor or, or no one who has a genuine concern for a true church would want to see. No one would want to see a church go into error. And so as he shifts gears now to the matter of the resurrection, we, we get to see his real concern for them come across in just a simple term. Paul refers to them as brethren. And the term brethren in, in verse 1 of chapter 15 serves double duty here in this section. First of all, it expresses Paul's real deep concern for them and it expresses how he sees them. Now Paul understands that they have real theological questions, especially about the resurrection. And he also understands that the way that they have begun to think or that they have been misled to think about the resurrection calls into question the entire legitimacy of what we would call biblical Christianity. Their entire faith has been undermined. And Paul's going to introduce that in just a minute. But Paul expresses over and over again that he is confident of their faith, that he is confident of their standing in Christ. This comes across even in the first two verses of chapter 15. But let's go back and look at chapter 1 for a minute. Let's just kind of spend some time looking at how Paul thinks and writes about, these, about this church and the people within this church. Because while we know that Paul can be very acerbic and very abrasive, Paul can even be quite sarcastic or ironical. And his sarcasm is biting. Underneath that, underneath that, Paul is very much concerned about the Corinthian congregation. Look at, look at how he writes of them in verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, Unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf 
for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Notice that? Paul doesn't write about them. It doesn't come across, does it, as though Paul is is questioning their salvation. It's not coming across as though Paul is questioning whether they really have believed or not. Paul seems persuaded that, that he is writing to a congregation of true believers. They may have problems, their spiritual growth may be stunted, but nevertheless he sounds like someone who is confident that they have heard the truth and that they have believed the truth. And the fact that he refers to them, you can even look back and see in chapter 14 and verse 39. There he refers to them as brethren. Then in chapter 15 and verse 1, he refers to them again as brethren. Paul seems persuaded that despite all of their problems, that they are in fact true believers. Now, maybe this might give us some peace of mind. In this sense, in order to be true believers, we don't have to have a perfect church. Think about that for a minute. I've told you this story in the past, but I'll tell it again. When I was in seminary, we, uh, one of our older professors was Brother John Owen. And he used to, he used to have a statement he liked to make uh, in pastoral epistles. He'd give us a warning, and he did it two or three times throughout the semester. And it went like this. He said, brethren, if you guys ever find the perfect church, don't ever join it, because you'll ruin it. (laughs) Think about it for a minute, all right? There is no such thing as a perfect church. Just because we may have doubts and questions, and just because a church can have problems, just because there are inequities of spiritual knowledge, and sometimes those inequities of spiritual knowledge contribute rather than ameliorate the problems, sometimes they contribute to the problems. Just because that may be the case doesn't undermine whether or not we can and in fact may be true believers the whole point of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that we are imperfect people we're never going to have a perfect church we're never going to be perfect believers we're never going to have perfect knowledge of the truth now please understand though all right and I want to make this very clear that's no excuse for not growing It's no excuse for not reading the scriptures, studying the Bible, growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, moving toward maturity. Don't let the fact that in this life we'll never have perfect understanding deter you or deter us all, make us lazy for growing and maturing in Christ. But also let's take some comfort in the fact that even a first century church, just like the apostles, days after the resurrection of Jesus, just like they had doubts, just like they had questions. Here is one of the earliest churches of which we have record. In fact, the book of Acts gives us the account of how that church was formed and and the preaching of the gospel that took place there. It's one of the earliest, oldest churches that there ever was. And yet, look at at, at them. They are people who have false doctrine among them. That false doctrine has created doubts. They've got personal issues within their church. There's all sorts of ugliness and problems. And yet... Paul writes of them as brothers. He expresses his confidence that they are, in fact, true believers. It's 
So let's not let the problems of the world, let's not let any problems that may exist within the church or could exist within our own church, let's not let our doubts, our fears, our personal issues deter us from the reality that what we have believed is the truth and let it not deter us from continuing to meet and to grow together in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul writes then of them as brothers and he means to express confidence that they are true believers. What he also wants to do though is he wants to get their attention. He wants them now, he wants to, to, to shift gears, to talk about another spiritual issue and he wants them to sit up and take notice. And so that's the purpose of this term, brothers. It's to draw us in and to get us to sit up and pay attention and listen as Paul now shifts gears and teaches us about something else. All right, then, as he continues, as we've already read, he tells them that he is declaring unto them the gospel which I preached unto you. I want to spend some time now on this word declare. Literally, it means I am making known. I am making known. And this word, or this particular term, seems an odd choice if you think about it because what Paul says is I am declaring or making known unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. In other words... I've already told you this. I've already preached this gospel to you. But I am making it known to you. I am declaring it to you. Again, in the word declare or to make known, Paul is using a term that seems designed to convey two ideas. One of them is that he's just going to elaborate upon something he has already told them. He's going to recount for them, make known to them, declare unto them something that they have already heard, but that they need to hear again. And certainly, through the first 11 verses of chapter 15, that's what Paul does. He recounts for them the gospel that he's preached to them. In fact, if you look at verse 11, as he comes to the end of, of, the, of the content of his message, he says, therefore, whether it were I or they, so we are preaching and so you have believed. That is, in this way we're preaching. Here is the content of what we're preaching, of what we're declaring. This is what I've declared. This is what all the apostles have declared. This is what we're all preaching. This is what we're all saying. This is what you have believed. Notice that statement. I've preached this to you and you've believed it. So on the one hand, he's just making known something to them that they've already heard. But this term make known also because it introduces to us the whole section it also must imply that there's something deeper to explain about the gospel. Paul doesn't just want to recount the physical events related to the gospel related to the resurrection of Jesus I should say. Paul also wants to walk the Corinthians through the logical implications of the resurrection of Jesus. We need to think about some deeper matters related to the resurrection. Like, for example, is resurrection even possible? If resurrection is possible, then what will it look like to be resurrected? Why do we need to be resurrected? How does that affect the, the body? Is it the physical body, this flesh that we have that will be raised? Or will it be a different kind of body that will be raised? See, once we begin thinking about what the gospel is, once we begin thinking about the, the physical nature of the resurrection of Jesus, 
That then brings us to think more deeply, to think in a deeper way about resurrection itself, what it will be like, why it is necessary, and ultimately what that means as well for our anticipation of the return of Jesus as well as the way we live now. So by this term, make known, I'm making known to you. He means I'm going to recount this, something I've already told you, but I'm also going to elaborate on it. I'm going to explain it deep, deeper. I want you to think about the implications of the gospel, and I want you to think about the implications of the gospel in light of what some are preaching among you. And any doubts you have about the resurrection, any doubts you may have about whether you will be raised, we will address those as I make known to you the gospel which I preached to you. Now, after conveying all of that in two words, there are some things that we need to think about with regard to the gospel itself. Paul now walks the Corinthians through three things about the gospel. And the word that's translated the gospel just means the message, all right? It's, it's one of two New Testament words, and Paul uses both of them in 1 Corinthians. Uh, but it's one of two New Testament words for the, the preaching, the content of the message that the apostles like Paul preached. It included the crucifixion, it included the burial of Jesus, it included the resurrection, it includes so much more as I'll show you next Sunday. Alright? But, with regard to the gospel, there are at least three, if not four things that Paul says about this gospel in verses 1 and 2. The first thing he says of the gospel, and we've already repeated it, is that simply the, it's the gospel which we preached to you, or the gospel which I preached to you. The gospel which I preached to you. That is, Paul has already proclaimed, he's already recounted for the Corinthians the gospel. Number two, the Corinthians have received this message. Now there's something going on here. I'm going to come back to it in just a minute. All right? But the second the first thing about the gospel is Paul's preached it to them. The second thing is that they have received it. Now the word received is very important here. It literally means to welcome. But it also is a word that, that in a Jewish and biblical context has special meaning. All right? Now, Paul does this all the time. Paul writes of the message of Christ, the events of Jesus' life, the crucifixion, the resurrection. He writes of it as though it is part of an oral tradition. Keep that in mind. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago when we first came to the resurrection events in the Gospel of Luke that one of the reasons why the Gospel writers give us the names of people who are there is because they are trying to establish the authoritative oral tradition upon which the message of the resurrection is based. And it is an invitation. Go check out for yourself. These people are still alive. You know the names. You go check out for yourself whether this information is true or not. Paul, especially in 1 Corinthians 15, but he also does this in 1 Thessalonians, he writes of the gospel as part of an oral tradition. And there are two aspects of an oral tradition. First of all, there's the authority of the information that's passed down. And that information is written of in Greek as though it's passed along. It's passed alongside. 
And Paul, in fact, will use this term. If you look at verse 3, Paul writes in this way. He says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Do you see that? The word received here puts Paul in the same position as the Corinthians were. He's, he's establishing a, a chain link of, of passing down of information, if you will. I received this. Here's the information that was told to me. I delivered that information to you. I received that information myself and when I preached it to you, you received my gospel. What Paul is getting at, and this is very important, is that the gospel which the Corinthians have received was not some message that Paul himself made up. It was not invented it was not constructed. Paul didn't have his own little twist on it. It wasn't that, that Peter and James and John, if, if any of them were still alive, that they were saying one thing, but Paul had his own spin on the gospel and he was saying another. One of the most important things in the opening sections of 1 Corinthians 15 is that Paul is declaring that there is a single message about Jesus. We all preach that single message. I heard that message myself. I received that message from the authoritative sources myself and I preached it to you and you received it from me. We can, if you will, make a chain link succession from what you received from me all the way back to the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus resurrected themselves. So this gospel is what I preach to you and it's what you received. But the idea of receiving isn't just, well, you welcomed it, you were glad to hear it, you heard me out. It is that you believed you took in for yourself as authoritative information as the truth what I proclaimed to you thirdly he says of the gospel it's that it is the one in which you all have stood and continue to stand in the King James Version, it's translated as wherein ye stand. It is the gospel in which you have stood. You say, well, what does he mean by standing? How do you stand in a gospel? Right? How do you stand in a gospel? A gospel is not a concrete object necessarily that you can actually go put your feet in and stand up in. What does he mean? All right? Well, what he means at a minimum is this, that the Corinthians have believed it and they have remained in it from the time that they first heard Paul preach the gospel until now. They haven't strayed away. They haven't forsaken it. They haven't abandoned it. They are still people who remain or, excuse me, who have constructed and organized their lives and their church around this central message. Now, Paul could also mean something else here. Where he says, in which you, have, in which you stand, he could mean here, in which you stand as forgiven, redeemed, holy, and righteous before God could also mean that because in Romans chapter 5 Paul uses the term stand in a very similar way as he writes of the grace in which we have stood and continue to stand either way the Corinthians are still there they are still there in that gospel now there is a fourth thing that Paul says in verse 2 he says of this gospel 
through which also you are being saved. Through which you also are saved. It is the gospel through which you're being saved. And being saved here, the way he uses it, is designed to convey the certainty of the outcome. The certainty of the outcome. Now let me spend a little time here with you for just a second. And that is this. If it turns out that the gospel message is true, if it turns out that it's true, through receiving that message as authoritative, through hearing it, we will be saved if we believe it. Here's what I'm getting at. The New Testament does not convey the idea that once you're a believer in Jesus Christ that there's doubt about your future. That there's some question about whether or not you will be glorified, caught up with Christ to meet him in the air and to spend eternity in the presence of God. No, as we've talked about recently in, in recent Bible studies on Wednesday and Sunday nights, we've seen that from God's point of view, what Paul refers to as our glorification, that is that time when we actually receive a body like Christ's, and when we get to be in the presence of God and spend our eternity in the presence of our Savior and our Creator, from God's point of view, we have already been glorified. It's a done deal. There's no doubt about whether we will be saved or not. Instead, our salvation is certain. And it is through hearing the message that Paul preached to the Corinthians. And it's through hearing the message that the apostles preached. It's through hearing the message of scripture. And coming to accept it as authoritative. And believing in Christ. That we come to be saved. And that we then come to have the certainty of our future salvation. But then Paul does something that I think borders on genius. It might seem to you as though he now is going to undermine everything, but he doesn't. Look at what he says next. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Wait, he says, by which you're being saved, if you keep in memory what I preach to you, unless you've believed in vain. Why in the world does he say that, and what does any of that mean? <laughs> all right? Now, first of all, let's just deal with the terms. The term that's translated, keep in memory. Keep in memory. Just literally means to hold down. To hold down, to hold on to. It is used throughout the New Testament in both a positive sense and a negative sense. In its negative sense, for example, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul says of men that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, using the same term. But here, this word means to hold on to, to remain in, to continue in something. Now notice what he's saying. He's saying that you are being saved or you will be saved through the gospel. But he says you're being saved through the gospel assuming that you are remaining in what word that is the very word that I proclaim to you. Why is he throwing in that if. And then there's another part of it too. He adds at the end, unless you have believed in vain. I said a moment ago, I think he does something here that borders on genius because what he's doing is he's grabbing the attention of the Corinthians. 
On the one hand, he has first expressed his confidence in them as believers. He knows their past. He knows that they've heard the gospel that he preached. He knows that they have stood in it, that they're still standing in it. He also confirms for them that the gospel that Paul preached to them is the one through which they're being saved. But then in the last part of verse 2, Paul introduces the doubt, the questions that have arisen from some within the Corinthian church that have motivated them to ask Paul to address the question of the resurrection. What's he getting at here? What's he getting at here? Let's see if we can expand upon this for just a moment. First of all, by saying, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, Paul is allowing for this. He knows that within the Corinthian congregation, there is an alternative message that has arisen. That alternative message is that there is no resurrection. In fact, if you look at verse 12 with me for a moment, you can see this. Where he says, now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead... How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see that? Notice the phrase again. How say some among you? So the Corinthians have among them those who do what? Those who deny that there is such a thing as resurrection of the dead. Well, the message that Paul preached to them and the message that there is no resurrection of the dead, these are incompatible. They can't go together. The Corinthians can't listen to the people who have caused the doubts to arise about the resurrection. They can't listen to those people and join hands with them and at the same time claim that they are believers in Paul's message. Paul's message not only declares that Christ raised from the dead, but through the resurrection of Jesus argues then that resurrection for everyone else must be a reality. You can't believe. Well, I believe the message of Paul and I believe that there is no resurrection. These won't go together. So assuming that you are remaining in, that you're holding on to what I preach to you, you are being saved through that through that message. Now, if you've abandoned that message, if you don't believe that Jesus was really raised from the dead, and if you believe there is no such thing as resurrection, then you're not being saved through my gospel. You've believed in vain. In fact, notice what he says. This really, no doubt, would have grabbed the attention of the Corinthians because at the end of verse 2, he says, unless you've believed in vain. And the word in vain here means emptily, with no substance whatsoever. In fact, there are three main Greek words for vain. Paul uses all three of them in this chapter. They're all synonyms. In fact, let's just look at some of them. For example, look at uh, verse 14. If Christ be not risen then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is what? Vain, empty, without substance, without foundation. Look at verse 17. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. Yes, in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, Paul is already getting at the crux of the matter. Here is what he is laying out before them. There's a conflict. If they believe Paul, 
which so far they have. But there is no resurrection. Right? Follow me now. If Paul is, in, in essence, putting out before the Corinthians this. If you believe my message, but there turns out to be no such thing as resurrection. If, if those who preach there's no resurrection among you, if they turn out to be right, then you've believed in vain. You've believed in vain. There's no foundation to your faith. There's no substance to your faith. There's nothing but emptiness. All right? Now, listen. Conversely, it's true that if they believe the false teachers, those who proclaim there is no resurrection from the dead, but it turns out that there is such a thing as resurrection, They've also believed vainly. And Paul has wasted his time on them. Which he's prone to saying anyway. Of the Galatians and of the Corinthians. Now he's persuaded he hasn't wasted his time on them. But do you see the heart of the matter? Here's the heart of the matter. If Paul is right... If Paul is right, but they believe the false teachers, they've believed the false teachers in vain. If they believe Paul, but there is no resurrection, then their faith in Paul's message is vain. We have a conflict. We have a conflict. Somebody's right, somebody's wrong. A couple of things I want to expand upon at the end here, and I'm going to leave you with a, a question. Here's what I want to expand on for a moment. Notice that within the Corinthian church, you've got two alternatives. Paul doesn't seem to be very welcoming of diverse ideas, does he? Say, well, can't you just have a, a Christianity that... You know, we, we're, we're heavy on the fellowship, however you want to define that, whether it's eating. The Corinthians are heavy on eating. Look at, first, uh, look at chapter 11. They like to eat. Can't we just have a Christianity where we get together and we eat and we love each other and we all exercise our spiritual gifts, but we don't have to be really serious about all this crucifixion and resurrection stuff, do we? Can't we have a version of Christianity like that? Yeah, you can. But if it's not true, it's pointless. It's empty. Well, how are we going to get it whether or not they're... How are we going to bridge this impasse? How are we going to find out whether the Corinthians have believed in vain or not? And for you and me, it's a question we should want answered too. Are we wasting our time at church? Are we wasting our time just being here? Is there something serious here? Is there something real here? Or is, is this just a way we kill an hour on a Sunday morning? Or is there really something there? Is there really something to it? Where there is such a thing as forgiveness of sins. Where there is such a thing as hope in the future. That is certainty about what lies out there. Where there is such a thing that calls us to a certain kind of way of life. A certain kind of holy living and holy thinking and growth and maturity. Is there any real teeth there? Any real substance? The answer, of course, lies in the answer to this question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Paul has introduced what the conflict is. Now he's going to settle the conflict. Is Paul right? Jesus was raised from the dead. 
or these false preachers, right? There's no resurrection from the dead. That doesn't affect anything. We can just go right on being a, a congregation. doesn't affect that we get together and meet and do all these things, but uh, we just have to embrace there's really no such thing as resurrection. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If he did, then those who claim that there is no resurrection from the dead will lead you into an empty faith if you believe them. The only saving faith the only saving faith depends upon whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead. And notice that this is what we're witnesses of. Notice that this is the gospel Paul preached. He didn't just preach, hey, there's the concept of resurrection out there and we think Jesus rose from the dead. No. The message is Jesus was crucified and three days later he physically was raised from the dead and this is a verifiable historical event. And it changes the way you have to look at everything. Yourself, God, how we understand truth, the future, everything about who we are has to be recalibrated in light of the reality that this man raised from the dead. We got to think in a different way. And so the question I'll leave you with is this. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Or did he not? Whether we're just wasting our time or doing something that everybody ought to be doing depends upon that question and no other. Thank you for being here this morning. I'll ask you to join me in standing. Let's bow for a dismissal prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that we've had to meet together this morning and to sing praises to your name, to open your word, we thank you that you have seen fit not only to provide salvation for us through Jesus Christ, but also to make it plain and make it known to us that you have through your word. We thank you, Father, for revealing to us your character that we can know that you are gracious and merciful, long-suffering, forgiving, as well as holy and righteous. Father, we thank you so much for the undeserved grace that you've bestowed upon us. May we not take you for granted, but may we worship you, learn of you, grow in grace and knowledge of you as we await the time when Jesus will come again. We thank you for giving us the ability to live confidently knowing that there is a certain future, knowing that you will judge the world in righteousness through the one you raised from the dead. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for those who lead us. We pray for those who lead our state. We also pray, Father, for our fellow citizens that this would be a time of reevaluation of life and its meaning and its purpose and that they would come to understand that there is forgiveness of sins in no other than Jesus Christ and that they need Christ in order to be right with you, our creator. We pray for your protection as we go to our homes. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.